0: talking about the hard sayings of Jesus. I find it fascinating that Matthew's gospel in about these four or five chapters says an awful lot of hard things and rapid fire. And here we are in another section where Jesus is going to state a couple of difficult things. Now, up to this point, he has taught some difficult things about God's marriage law, about God's forgiveness, about the need to humble ourselves, the need to lower ourselves, the need to watch out for stumbling blocks and the need to not be a stumbling block uh, as the people of God. And, and now it's going to set up a, another interesting scene before us. It begins with a, a scene about children that might seem out of place, and yet it connects directly for what was just read to us about the offer that Jesus is making in, in order to have eternal life. So if you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 19, and you'll notice that this whole scene actually begins uh, back in verse 13. It says, Then little children were brought to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray. But the disciples <clears throat> rebuked them. And Jesus said, leave the little children alone and do not try to keep them from coming to me because the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And after placing his hands on them, he went out from there. What what Jesus does at the start of this scene that Matthew has for us is ultimately describe the right attitude that he is looking for in terms of receiving his offer for eternal life. Now, and you can imagine this scene as here is Jesus, here are his disciples. He always seems to have crowds around him and parents now are bringing their little children to see Jesus and they're wanting Jesus to pray for them. And so he wants them to lay his hands on them and, and pray for them. And I want you to get a sense of what is going on in the moment because Notice the disciples now are preventing and rebuking these parents for bringing their children. And I suppose it's not hard to think about why that would would be the case. I mean, you think about, I mean, hey. Jesus is kind of important here, right? He, he's got important things to teach us. He's got important things to do. He, he needs to be saving the world. He needs to be healing people. But he doesn't have time for these irrelevant small matters. You know, leave Jesus alone and let him do what he's going to do. It's not hard to get your mind around what the disciples may have been thinking as they're bringing these children to him especially because we noted back in chapter 18, something that comes into play here, that children were basically considered uh, a lower status of less importance. It's easy to be dismissive of children. That's even true in our society. You say, I don't have time for you. I've got these really important things. Go on and play. And you can imagine that scene here as well. And yet what is amazing is Jesus does not respond by saying, Yes, I am really, really important and I am far too busy for these small things. I am not going to lay my hands on your children and pray for them. Let me do what I'm about to do. You see something amazing in the the heart and the, the character of Jesus here that Jesus does what human leaders don't do. He doesn't say, You know, I'm too important. He doesn't say, you know, I'm too busy for this. Uh, I, I'm not accessible. You know, uh, t- talk, to, talk to my PR director and maybe he'll let me know and pass you through so that I, I might see you at some point. I'm Just I'd be amazed at the accessibility of Jesus. He is the, the most important person ever. And everybody can come up to him. Even with things that the disciples would think are irrelevant or too uh, little, too small, easy to dismiss. And Jesus tells his disciples, don't hold them back. Don't prevent the parents from bringing the children to me. And and notice the reason why, as he states, because it's to the little children that the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven belongs. And one of the things that Jesus has been trying to emphasize in these chapters is that Jesus receives the lowly, the humble in heart. He receives those who lower themselves and see themselves as insignificant. And he's putting his finger on that right here. While you look at these children and are dismissive about them, it's that kind of heart of lowering oneself. And bringing oneself to that very level that Jesus is going to receive. Now that sets the table for what is is going to happen here. If the only way to enter the kingdom is by the willingness to lower yourself. You'll notice that verse 16 has a connection of just then. So you can imagine, here's Jesus telling the disciples, let the parents come on in. Here is Jesus. He's laying his hands on the children. He's praying for the children. And you will notice a scene of interruption that verse 16 then goes about and says, Someone came up to him and asked, Teacher, what good must I do to have eternal life? Tell me what good thing, what good act, what good do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Now, I want you to connect with this question for a minute because I believe this represents a way that we often think about Jesus and his offer of eternal life. Jesus... What else do I need to do to know that I'm in? Me, tell me something more. What, what other good thing can I do so I can feel good about my situation, to kind of throw it over the top, to know that I'm in, that, I, that I'm a part of the kingdom, that I have eternal life? We, we often want to think that way. What betrays that is we usually state it in the opposite. Do you really think God cares if we, (laughs) do I really have to, that's what we're doing in that process is we're talking about, okay, these are the things that God doesn't really care about, but what are the things that are really important, Lord, that I need to do? What's the good thing that I need to do? I know these other things that can't be it, but what's the good thing that I need to do so that I can have eternal life? I want you to notice Jesus' response because it's easy to pass over it, but Jesus is putting his finger on the problem of this young man in this first response. Though Jesus is going to answer him, Jesus says something that is intended to get this man to think, as well as to get the people around him to think. Notice that Jesus responds by saying in verse 17, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. You ever thought about why Jesus starts there? It doesn't seem to directly answer the question at all. I mean, doesn't it seem obvious? What good thing do I need to do to inherit eternal life? That seems pretty straightforward. That's not hard to understand. You know what I'm asking. And Jesus, rather than directly going for the answer, says, Now, why are you talking about good things? He's trying to make him take a step back and think about this question for a minute. Because there is a problem when you start talking about doing something good. The problem is, how do you define what's good? What good thing do I need to do? And Jesus goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. Before we talk about what we do, let's talk about the word good for a minute. Who says what's good? You're looking for a good act, but here's something important. What sets the standard for what is good? Who says what is good? You see what Jesus is trying to do with this man is get him to think about this. If you're going to ask me about what is good, then there needs to be some kind of standard definition some kind of objective truth about what is good and who is good. And of course, Jesus is going to put himself as I'm good. But do you understand what you're asking? Don't have time to talk about it, but friends, this is a very important start point in talking to people. That when somebody talks about something that is good, would you please stop them and say, what is good? You can't start throwing around the term good and not have a definition for that. What is good and who says so? Jesus is already dealing with what we think would only be a 21st century problem right here. Who says what's good? Who defines that? Who says what's a good act and what's not a good act? We all have in our mind what we think is good. But who defines that? And that's where Jesus starts with this man. I want you to think about who you're talking to and what makes a good act a good act. And what makes a good person a good person? Because that can't be relative. That can't be moving. There needs to be a standard. And then Jesus goes about answering his question Verse 17, if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Very simple picture, right? If this is the way you want to look at eternal life, which is what do I need to do? Then I'll give you a very easy answer. The commandments do them. That's why Moses gave the law. That's what the law is all about. Here's the way to be right with God. Follow the commandments. Do what they say. I want you to notice something that's fairly interesting about how the man responds. You'll notice that the man responds in in, in verse 18 and says, which ones? Now, don't give him a hard time. There's over 600 of them. (laughs) Keep the commandments. Well, surely you can't mean All of them, which ones? That that goes back to the original question. What do I need to do? What good thing do I need to do to inherit eternal life? If we were to just tell somebody, keep the commandments, the response would be, which ones? Which, Which ones do I need to focus on? Which ones are you telling me I need to do? And I want you to notice how Jesus responds to that. Jesus responds in verse 18 by saying, do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I want you to notice that the answer that this man gives is not great. I only have to keep six of them. Fantastic. That's not the interaction they're having. He, Jesus is not named six so that he goes, fantastic, I'll go do the six, and then I know I'm good to go. When Jesus starts quoting these commandments, he's saying all of it again. <laughs> if you want to have life, do the commandments. Which ones? All right, I'll just start reading the law to you. <laughs> Where do you want me to stop? Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Honor your father and your mother. Love your neighbor as yourself. You need to do the law. You can't pick and choose them. You can't say six out of six ten is going to be good. But here's the something that I think is particularly surprising about what he says in verse 20. Look at verse 20. Notice the young man says, I have kept all these. What else do I lack? Jesus says, do the law. The Young man says, got it, done it, nailed it, complete. What else? Next. <laughs> hmm. This makes the discussion turn and where Jesus has to go with this man to try to get him to understand something. So you see, there is a problem when we start talking about doing God's will or obeying the commands. We have this great tendency as humans to say, all right, do the commands. Okay, yeah, I'm doing them. And what we're ultimately doing is lowering them in such a way in our minds so that we think we're keeping them. If I were to ask you, are you keeping God's commands? Sure. Really? It is very easy to say, oh, yeah, I, I'm doing God's commands. But usually what that entails is we have changed the commands to match what we're already doing. And I want you to notice that that's illustrated in even what Jesus says. Notice how Jesus ended in verse 19. He said, Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, there's two ways you can hear that command. If we were to come to Jesus and say, What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And his answer was, I want you to love your neighbor as yourself. There's two ways to hear that. We can hear it number one like this Great. I'm nice to my neighbor. I'm very kind. I say hi to him every time he's out there in the driveway. If he's ever washing his car, I'm certainly to give away, you know, a nice little dash there. Never do anything mean. Don't complain about the things he's doing. Yeah, they can get really loud at night, but I'm really nice. And so I love my neighbor. You can go that way with it. And that's the way he's going with it. Oh, yeah, all these I've kept from my ears. No problem. Love my neighbor? Sure. But there's another way to hear that. You can hear it like Jesus taught it in the parable parable of the Good Samaritan. (laughs) Who's my neighbor? Oh, well, let's start talking about how you're sacrificing for them. Let's talk about how you give for them. Let's talk about how you do for them like you would do for yourself. Let's talk about how you put their interests above your own. You see, what we want to do is love your neighbor means I'm nice, I'm not mean friendly, kind, you know, don't do to them what I think they ought to get. That's that lowering. And that's what he's done. You imagine Jesus comes to you and says, here's what I want you to do. Don't do all these things. He gave a list of don'ts. And I want you to honor your father and your mother. And I want you to love your neighbor as yourself. I just want you to think about all the laws. Everything that God has asked you to do. And you can have one of two responses. Yeah, I am doing great at that. Or you can be convicted by that. And so Jesus has to go somewhere since this man is not convicted by this. Rather, when he hears the commands, he says in verse 20, all these I have kept. What else do I lack? Well, Jesus is going to say in verse 21, if you want to be perfect, go and sell your belongings and give to the poor. and You will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And when the young man heard that, he went away grieving because he had many possessions. I think it is amazing what Jesus always does. Because what Jesus does in these conversations is always the intent of the law, which is he's going to expose your heart. When you think you're doing great, he's going to try to show you that you're not. So that's what happens here. Oh, you think you are doing wonderfully about keeping the law. Let me expose a failure point in your life, let me show you your real heart. Let me expose that you're not doing what I've said. And so he says, all right, you're just keeping the law. You know, it's a, it's a 10 on the chart. You're killing it. Great. Go ahead and sell all you have. Give it to the poor and come follow me. why did he pick that? Because Jesus has an amazing way to find what you value more than him. And that's what he does with this man. I know what you value more than me. So let's just put it on the table and let's expose it. I know what you value. You value your stuff more than me. And that's the response you see there in verse 22. When the young man heard this, it says he went away grieving. Why? Why is he so upset? Because he had a lot of stuff. And what Jesus is constantly trying to do in our hearts is to expose what we value more than him. I think this is a particularly interesting way to note what we have covered in these chapters, how that challenge really comes to light in regards to this man He is unwilling to sell what he has because he values his possessions and his wealth more than Jesus. People are going to be unwilling to follow Jesus' marriage law because they value marriage more than Jesus. That was the prior paragraph. The paragraph before that, people are going to prize and value their superiority. That's why they're going to be unwilling to forgive as Jesus taught them to forgive or back up a little bit more. People are going to value more of their comfort because they're going to be unwilling to find the lost sheep. And people are going to be unwilling to forfeit their rights to not be a stumbling block for others. For Jesus sake, you can go backward for what we have traced over these last few lessons over the prior chapters And note how Jesus is calling for a change. And in that change, there is a question. Do you value me more than what you prize in your heart? Do you value Jesus or do you value holding it over somebody and not forgiving them? Do you value Jesus or do you value your rights? I'm right. Do you value Jesus or do you value your possessions? Do you value Jesus or do you value your comfort? All of these, these teachings that Jesus has gone through that are hard teachings is trying to expose our hearts. To try to help us see the idolatry that we are worshipping something other than him. Now I want you to think about this scene. If someone came in here and said, hey, I want to know what I need to do to have eternal life. And we said, well, you need to keep the commandments. And and he said, which ones? And we said, all of them. He said, great, I've been doing that. High fives. Welcome to the club. So glad you're here. You see that Jesus does not accept that. He doesn't go great. I'm so glad that you think you're doing a good job with me. So proud of you. Well done. Jesus is always probing. Do you really value me? I know you think you keep the commandments, but do you value me? Because there's a lot of things that we do for God. Because we agree with it. Because we like it. But when God tells us to do something that we do not like or don't agree with, that's when we're going to find the exit. And that's what happens here. When the young man heard it, he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Now, Jesus wants to underscore this to make sure that we get this clear. Look at Verse 23, Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then, if that wasn't strong enough, he'll go at it again. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Don't try to lower that standard either. Don't try to adjust it or minimize it. One of my favorites is, I don't know who came up with this. Some guy some, some time ago wrote in a commentary that gateways in those ancient days were called needles and camels got down on their knees and crawled through needles. There is zero historical Evidence that camels crawl on their knees to enter into gateways. He is speaking about the impossibility. This is a hard saying. In fact, it is so hard that the disciples say that. They don't read that and go, Yeah, that's, you know, okay. The disciples are stunned. If that's true, who can be saved? And I want you to think about what Jesus is teaching here, because this should just hit us between the eyes. The more we have, the harder it is to enter. That's what he just told them, because that's what just happened. Why did the young man walk away? Because it says he had many possessions. And now Jesus underscores that. The more we have, the harder it is to deny ourselves. I won't make you raise your hand, but friends, is that true? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The more we have, the more comforts we enjoy, the more possessions we have, the more wealth we have, the harder it is to get rid of them and follow Jesus. That's all he's saying right here. It is hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And we are that definition. We have much. Please do not read. It's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Yep, Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos, those guys are going to have a hard time. But, you know, easy for us. Those guys, they're billions. (laughs) Friends, we are rich. We have stuff. And Jesus is warning here. It's only going to be harder for us because we have so much stuff. It is going to be harder to deny ourselves. It's going to be harder to value Jesus higher than the things that we have. And this is why the disciples seize on this at this moment. Listen to their question in verse 25. Then who can be saved? If this guy is not in, who's in? I mean, valid question. This guy says... I've been keeping the commands and he's richly blessed by God. He has stuff. God has been good to him. And he says, I've been obeying what God has told me from the very beginning. What do I lack? And the disciples are like, then if it's not him, who can possibly be saved? If the rich aren't going in, who's going in? If our standard of law keeping doesn't work, then who can be saved? Or to put this another way, if Jesus is able to find holes in our holiness, who can be saved? We quell our hearts by saying, oh, I'm doing pretty good. Let me lower all these standards. Let me lower all these standards of holiness and per- of perfection and completeness and righteousness. Let me lower them so I'm looking pretty good. And Jesus is putting the bar right back up where it belongs and says, I expose hearts, I'm challenging your faith, I'm trying to see who will value me above all else. And so if our standard of keeping the commandments doesn't cause entry, who then can possibly be saved? And I hope that we would get a sense of where Jesus is trying to put our hearts at this moment. I hope that we would feel the weight of what Jesus is trying to do to get us to understand where we are with him and who we are with him. Because friends, if we come to the Lord with our list of things and say, here's what I've done, what do I still lack? None of us are going to like the answer. If Jesus walks in here and we go, Lord, I go to church every Sunday. I've been baptized. I take the Lord's Supper. I don't kill. I don't steal. I don't commit adultery. I'm a pretty nice person. I don't do really bad things like those people out there. What else do I lack? Do you think Jesus answer is going to be like, you guys are crushing it. Or is he going to do to us what he just did to this guy? We like to focus on where we think we're killing it. And Jesus is going to turn and go. There's always a hole. There's always a sin. There's always a problem. There's always a flaw. There's always a weakness. Do not commend yourself because your sum of Christianity is church pew sitting and not being a really, really wicked person. There are some bigger holes that Jesus is happy to expose if we ask him to. And that's why Jesus says what he says here. With us, it's impossible. I hope you hear this. The disciples throw their hands on the air and say, who then can be saved? And Jesus' answer is not, well, if you try really hard. Jesus has you exactly where he wants you. That's right. Now you understand the point. If it depends on you, salvation is impossible. If you think you can get there on your own, you are in a world of trouble. Because all you're doing is looking at the things you think are good and are ignoring all the things that are the glaring holes. Salvation is impossible if we look at ourselves. And I hope that we would feel the weight of that. We cannot look at ourselves and go, I'm doing all right. Let me illustrate this. I'll use the illustration that we looked at a couple of weeks ago back in Matthew chapter 18. In Matthew 18, the second half of that chapter, you might remember Jesus tells a story where there is a master and a servant, and that servant owes 10,000 talents. And I calculated out to you that was. 60 million denarii, 60 million days wages. It was an absolutely stunningly impossible debt that was portrayed there. You don't have 60 million days wages. Remember, I threw it in the calculator. You will only live on average about 27,000 some days. And you have a 60 million day wage debt. Now, here's what we do. But I've paid God back a thousand, so he's happy with me. We like to think that our good deeds are somehow paying down a 60 million days wage debt. Even if this man is right, and all of his days have been toward God, he has spent over 27,000 days That's nothing to the 60 million days of debt he has. It doesn't matter. That is just like saying you owe billions of dollars, but I'll catch you a check for a hundred bucks. How good am I doing? Like you're just looking at it going, what's the point? You're not doing anything. You're not moving the needle. This is the point that Jesus is trying to get this rich man to understand. You can't think that your good debts are paying a debt down. With man, it's impossible. Who can be saved? If we're going to start trying to own up on our deeds, you are not going to get there. But I want you to embrace the glorious words of the rest of verse 26. But with God, All things are possible. That is so good. That is so good. You were supposed to stand there with the debt, with the exposed holiness with the impossibility of paying our sins back and the impossibility of paying the debt of feeling the magnitude of the weight of our sins. And only when we feel the weight of our sins can salvation be possible. It is only when we see I can't come to God and go, yeah, I do this, I do this, I do this. We're not going to be able to receive salvation. We can't inherit eternal life if I'm looking at my list of good things and think I'm moving the needle at all toward God. Salvation is only able to be received when we look at Christ. And Jesus told a wonderful parable about that to sum up that idea. You have one guy who stands on the street corner and he prays to God, I'm a really good guy. I pray, I fast, I do things for you and I'm sure glad I'm not like those terrible people out there. Sound like us? Jesus says that man's not justified. But then there was a tax collector who was also on that corner Who would not lift up his eyes. And all that he could say is God be merciful to me a sinner. He got it. Jesus says that man went home justified. That one receives the offer of eternal life. That one understands what I'm trying to do. And that's the whole idea of where this whole thing started. Why does the kingdom of heaven belong to those who are like little children? Because you're going to have to see who you are before God. And you are going to have to lower yourself and not think you're something before God. Like you're contributing to this debt and doing anything wonderful. But simply on our knees looking to Christ desiring his salvation. Let me put it in a big sense like this. It's only when we count ourselves as nothing that we can value Jesus beyond anything in this life. That's what Jesus is doing in this scene. He found what this rich man valued, and he walked away. And it's only when you stand before God with absolutely nothing to offer, nothing to give, feeling the magnitude of your sins, that you will value Jesus in such a way that you will give up whatever to follow him. But so long as we think we're not that bad, So long as we think like this man, well, I don't murder and I don't steal and I don't commit adultery and I'm here at church and God's kind of okay with me. We're never going to value him to sacrifice in the way that he wants us to. We're looking at ourselves still. And I'll end the lesson with the way the Apostle Paul summed it up to the Philippians. Indeed, I count everything as loss. I only am going to be able to count all things as trash and be willing to throw everything away and be willing to change whatever Jesus exposes in my heart when I see the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And the only way to see the surpassing worth of knowing Christ is seeing the weight of your sin. And how your good deeds are going nowhere in trying to get you to eternal life. Because with man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Let's go to God in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, what a weighty teaching. Lord, forgive us for how many things we cling to in our hearts that we value more than you. Forgive us for when we look to your commands and think that we are doing well. Forgive us for how often we think that we are not that bad and paying off this enormous death that we have created because of our sins. God, forgive us for not seeing the surpassing worth and glory of your son. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see where our flaws are. Help us to see what we value more than you. Help us to see what we're unwilling to sacrifice. Help us to see what we think is of greater importance than you. And Lord, please give us a a clear vision of your offer of eternal life. Give us a clear vision to see that salvation and eternal life are only possible because of you. Only because of your son. Only because of that sacrifice. And not because of us. Lord, help us to be grateful. Help us to be humble help us to lower ourselves like little children so that we will always stand amazed at the greatness of your glory and your love and forgiveness in jesus name amen Amen. we invite you to come to the grace of god tonight or today to turn away from sin think about the weight of what god has done for you and to give your life to him It's not a put one more thing in the checkbox. It's not a what good thing can I do? It's just simply giving your life to him because he's given his life for you. He wants you to be saved. He wants you to enjoy eternal life. And he's made that possible. Would you turn away from your sins and give your life to him this very day, confessing him to be your Lord and Savior, the Son of God who came to this world and died for you? Be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. Can we help you do that? Would you let me know afterward? Let someone next next to you know or you can come forward now while we stand and while we sing.